Beloved, I did not grow up <clears throat> in a uh, Christian household. Um, that's not what we would want for our children. However, there were actually some benefits from that when God saved me, one of which was I didn't have any doctrinal baggage. So it was just a blank slate. So when God's doctrines of grace, when the teachings of Scripture uh, come so clearly across, I was able to accept it at face value. Eternal security, for example, the perseverance of the saints, once saved, always saved. It was very clear to me that since God is the one that saves me, saves us, God is the one that saved me, we're not going to lose our salvation. Um, election, God's sovereignty and salvation. When you start reading Genesis, it's inescapable. It's very obvious. Now, I'm not recommending to parents that you don't raise your children so they have a blank slate. But again, that was one of the blessings that God gave even out of that background that I had. There were, of course, downsides to it as well. I wasn't raised on some of the deep, rich lyrics and theology of hymns that we enjoy that we sang today. For example, I mean, one of the ones I missed out on was Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham. I have one of them, and so are you. So I wasn't weaned on that as a child. But nonetheless, God is good, and he is faithful. Beloved, please open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 11. Uh, Abraham is the topic. We are continuing our journey through the portrait gallery of faith. One thing that I will say here is even as we are communing with these wonderful men and next time after Abraham, Sarah, the wonderful men and wonderful women of the faith of old, we should understand that chapter 11 is ultimately and primarily about a faithful God, not about believing people. And what the author does here as we move from Abel, Enoch, and Noah to Abraham, he's taking us. And even with those first three examples, which he drew from Genesis 4, 5, and 6, the author of Hebrews is taking us from the primeval history of Genesis 1 through 11 to the patriarchal history of Genesis 12 and forward. Genesis 1 through 11 is the only record of creation in primeval history. Its importance cannot be overstated. One third of all world history is found only in the first 11 chapters of Genesis. Now, having said that, as we move to chapter 12, this is also a very central and epic transition and point and place in scripture that we find ourselves as the author, pastor, preacher even exposits ever so briefly in the life of Abram. When we think of Genesis, Genesis can be structured in the first 11 chapters as four great events and then chapters 12 through 50, four great people. The four great events in the first 11 chapters are creation, fall, the flood, and the tower of Babel. The four great people are Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph, all of whom are included in the hall of faith that we find ourselves here in Hebrews chapter 11. Now, when we consider Abraham, it is most amazing. Genesis, the entire book of Genesis covers almost 2,000 years, excuse me, covers over 2,000 years of history, some 20 generations, yet one-third of the volume of all of Genesis, almost one-third of the volume, is spent on just Abraham. 
Also, here in Hebrews chapter 11, more space is devoted to Abraham in chapter 12, excuse me, verses uh, 8 through 19 than any of the other key examples that God gives for us through this portrait gallery of faith. So we can ask the question, why is Abraham, why is he given so much ink when Moses wrote Genesis? And why is he given so much ink when the author of Hebrews wrote chapter 11? Well, we know that beyond the fact that even now, when we're going from the lesser to the greater, when we consider the world, that I'm not sure the exact population, but when you consider that a majority of the world, or at least a significant percentage of the world, namely those that would ascribe to Islam, those that would ascribe to Judaism, and those that would ascribe to Christianity, esteem Abraham. That's something we see now, but going from that lesser to the greater, we know For example, in Genesis 15, verse 6, Abraham was the first one that it is explicitly mentioned that he was saved by faith. Abraham believed God. He had faith in God, and God reckoned it to him, imputed it to him as righteousness. In Genesis 17, verse 5, he is the father of a multitude of nations. Now, even when we think of his name, his original name, we're introduced to him as Abram, which means exalted father. But then God changes his name to Abraham, Abraham, father of many nations, father of many goyim. Or in Genesis 20, verse 7, he is called a prophet. In Psalm 105, verse 6, he's God's servant. In Galatians 3, 9, he's called the believer. In James 2, 23, now it's starting to get even a little closer to home, he's called the friend of God. The Apostle Paul cites him as an example of faith in both Romans and in Galatians. And in Romans 4, verse 11 and verse 16, he is the father of all who believe. I am one of them, and so are you, is the point. Beloved, hear the word of God. I'm going to read our passage this morning, which is verse 8 through 10 of Hebrews chapter 11. This is the word of God. By faith... Abraham, when he was called, obeyed by going out to a place which he was to receive for an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he lived as an alien in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise. For he was looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God." Beloved, this is the word of God read in your hearing. Please attend to it as such. Now, beloved, in terms of an outline, what we have here in these three verses, we have four marks of the saving faith of Abraham. Four marks of the saving faith of Abraham. Election, submission, separation, and sanctification. And the intent here is to be sure, Hebrews 11 in general And this particular example, the story of Abraham in particular, teaches us what a life of faith looks like. It continues the instruction. It continues the guidance that God gives us through this chapter in terms of what it means when God says, my righteous one will live by faith. And we can even pray that as we continue our journey through this seminal chapter, that God would transform the doubting into the believing, the discouraged to the hopeful, the confused to the clear-seeing, the worried to the confident, 
that he would take the alienated and transform them into the reconciled. That God might even transform the dead <clears throat> into the living, the blind into the seeing. That is the power of the word of God even when preached by one not mighty, not noble, by a frail man. So beloved, the first mark of Abraham's saving faith that we encounter in our text is election. Uh, I could have said invitation. I was kind of torn between invitation and election. One kind of goes more from the standpoint of man's perspective. The other goes more from God's perspective. So I chose God's perspective. Bottom line, what we see here is Abraham, Abraham is called. Even when we think of the election, the submission, separation, and sanctification, Abraham is called, and he obeys, and he went, and he lives. That's the flow that we see in these three verses. You see, beloved, God's first concern, <clears throat> again, in Genesis 1 through 11, from whence we came, is all the people of the world. That is whom the, is the main group, all the people, all human beings, all of creation in the first 11 chapters. But now the focus of the rest of Genesis, beginning actually even at the end of chapter 11 of Genesis, verses 27 and 28, with Terah, the father of Abraham, and the rest of the Old Testament, the focus is on God's election and protection of his chosen people, of the nation that is the apple of his eye, Israel. And this begins with the call of Abraham. Look at what the text says, Hebrews 11, verse 8, by faith. There's that key, that poetic outline that God gives us in chapter 11 that traces all these examples. By faith, Abraham, when he was called. Now, <clears throat> pause here for a moment. We, again, are reminded the original audience that was the recipient of this letter was this group of Jewish believers. So this really is beginning to come home to them. Abraham is the fountainhead of the nation of Israel. And the author's message through all of the book, certainly through all of chapter 11, and in particular with the father of the nation of Israel, here to that audience is namely embracing Christ alone by faith alone is to walk in harmony with Father Abraham. By faith, Abraham, when he was called. And actually, literally, the author continues. You may remember that when the author references the Bible, when he quotes the Bible, Throughout the book, he uses the present tense that God says, God is speaking. And even here he says, when Abraham literally, as Abraham is being called, he takes the reader, he takes you and me, <clears throat> and places us right back in that time. And he uses this present tense to drive home the fact that the word of God is living and active and dynamic and relevant and useful and compelling and commanding even today. And when it says when he was called, as he was being called, the called there doesn't merely mean invited, like being invited to a, a party or being called on the phone to say, hey, would you like to come to a party? This call of God is an effectual call. It's a summons. This is the call. This is the summons. This is even the command that awakens the dead. Um, it is in Scripture, the way it's used here, synonymous with being chosen of God. But let's turn back to Genesis. And this is a challenge because 
Abraham receives attention from, again, the end of Genesis 11, 11 verse 27, all the way through Genesis chapter 25, verse 18. We don't have quite enough time here to cover all that, but let's just look at the beginning of Genesis 12, which is a great summary of God's beginning work in the life and ministry of Abram. Genesis 12, verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. And I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great. And so you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you. And the one who curses you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Beloved, the call of Abraham begins with revelation. It is the word of God. God speaks to Abraham. And this is the first wrecking, by the way, of God speaking after the Tower of Babel. Remember back in Genesis chapter 11, uh, men were congregating and God had told Adam and Eve to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. After God destroyed the world with the flood, he gave the same command to Noah, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and in rebellion against God men were congregating at the tower of Babel and in judgment God scattered their language confused their language gave them different languages and tongues and thus scattered them but the central sin that the people had was what we read in Genesis 11 was they're trying to make a name for themselves but what we see here is God tells Abraham I will make your name great. And what's interesting is God's first word after creation to man is a blessing. God's first word after the fall is a blessing. And after the flood is a blessing, so also God's first, this is the first record of God speaking after the Tower of Babel. And again, it is a blessing. He leads with a blessing. In fact, five times in Genesis 12, 1 through 3, you see, I will. God says, I will do this thing. And he leads with a blessing. And what he says is, go, leave <clears throat> what we know <clears throat> was his hometown, which was the Ur of the Chaldeans. We know that from chapter 11, verse 28. Uh, the Ur of Chaldeans was a major metropolitan city of the ancient world where Abraham resided. They worshipped a pagan moon god. Uh, for example, Joshua 24, verse 2. Joshua looks back and reminds the people of Israel about this background. Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, From ancient times your fathers lived beyond the river, namely Terah, the father of Abraham, and the father of Nahor, and they, watch this, served other gods. So the point here is, Abraham, before God called him, before God revealed himself to Abraham, he was a moon-worshipping pagan. He was just like his contemporaries. He was an idolatrous pagan. Abraham brought nothing of merit to the table, and God saved him out of God's gracious goodness. In fact, in Genesis 15, verse 7, uh, God says there, this is right after uh, verse 6, where again we read that Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Then verse 7, I am the Lord, I am Yahweh, who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to 
possess. So Abraham was chosen by God. Abraham was called by God. That is the first mark of his saving faith. And when we think about Abraham's saving faith, it's the same faith that saves you and me. All of us from Adam and Eve to the end of time are saved. We are forgiven by God. We are made right by God in the same way, by faith and by faith alone, by believing God. Uh, On this side of Jesus, on this side of the crucifixion and the resurrection and the ascension and even the coronation of Christ at the right hand of the Father, we have more information, we have more revelation than Abel, Enoch, Noah, and Abraham had, but we are saved in the same fashion. And what's fascinating is here in chapter 11, that is the recurring thread through there, the same faith, yet with different nuances, with different dynamics. Abraham's faith is, to be sure, the same as Noah's, but it's different. Noah was given very specific instructions in terms of what he was to do when, God, when God's word spoke to him. He gave him very specific <clears throat> instructions around the boat, the massive boat that he was to build. When God calls Abram here out of Ur of the Chaldeans, all he says, is it's very nonspecific. Go to a land which I will show you. Nothing beyond that. Very nonspecific. Noah <clears throat> had to wait for 120 years. Noah had to undergo the jeering and the mocking and the ridicule as he built this massive ark. But after 120 years of faithful working for the Lord out of the obedience that flowed from his faith, Noah did see the realization of God's promise. Abraham received two promises among two or three, depending on how we slice them, from God, but he didn't see them realized in his lifetime. So there are great distinctions. Uh, Martin Luther, on the call of Abraham, he, it was interesting, Luther came out of a Roman Catholic background where very often they would misapply the call of Abraham to encourage people to go to a monistic lifestyle, to become priests, to take vows of celibacy and go and contemplate the lint in their navel in a cave or in a monastery somewhere. But when God saved Luther, when Luther realized that he was saved by faith alone, Luther also understood that this call of God is not something that is just relegated to. It's not something that's just restricted to a missionary or a pastor. Every Christian has a call from God by which they're saved in the first place, and every Christian has a call from God to minister wherever God has you. Romans 1 verse 7, the Apostle Paul, to all our beloved of God in Rome, called as saints. Notice he do, it's not called saints, it's called as saints. Or Revelation 17, verse 14, he is the Lord of lords and King of kings, and those who are with him are the called and chosen and faithful. So, beloved, to be sure, God's call on Abraham is very, very different than God's call on you and me and More importantly, it is foundationally and essentially the exact same kind of calling, calling us out of darkness into light, calling us out of blindness into sight, calling us out of death into life. It's the same call. And what kind of person does God call? I 
love the rainbow of God's grace. What kind of person receives forgiveness? What kind of person does, for example, Jesus call to be a disciple? It's interesting, when you look in all four Gospels, when the Gospel authors give the lists of the apostles, there's only two people, two of the apostles, where we are given their former occupation or their former affiliation. Matthew, the tax collector, and Simon, the zealot. Now, we know that uh, Peter, James, and John were fishermen, but they're not listed as such in the lists. Again, in the lists, the only ones that we are given their specific background are Matthew, the tax collector, and Simon, the zealot. Tax collectors were often strong-armed, vile, unprincipled thugs. They would basically collect taxes for the Roman government, and they would pad as much profit as possible to become rich. They were on the same level in the eyes of the people of Israel as prostitutes and murderers. In some cases or some ways, they were worse off than a leper. Uh, A leper couldn't go into a synagogue, couldn't go into a worship with the Israelites, but if they had a separate room where he could be separate, he could be welcomed in a side room. A tax collector was banned. Matthew was banned. He was shunned. Matthew had a tax collecting station on the Great Trunk Road that was from Damascus to Mediterranean that went by the Galilean Sea in Capernaum. And he was there, and the people would see him face to face when they had to pay the exorbitant extortion money. He was shunned by his people. But we read in Luke 5, verse 27, Jesus noticed a tax gatherer named Levi, who is also Matthew, sitting in the tax office, and he said to him, follow me. And Luke continues that Matthew immediately got up and went. He left his table. Or Simon the Zealot. The Zealots were terrorists and assassins. They would carry little knives in their fold of robes, and they would go up and they would assassinate Roman soldiers. They would assassinate political leaders. Anyone who opposed them, they would even assassinate and murder their fellow countrymen. When the Roman general Vespasian was assaulting Jerusalem in AD 70, the zealots were killing and assassinating people that wanted to compromise or at least reach some kind of agreement with the Romans. And Simon the zealot was a red hot iron plucked from the fire. He was an assassin who was transformed into a disciple. So all that to say who can receive forgiveness? Who? What kind of person can receive the call of God the worst of the worst? Beloved, Dear friend, understand this, there are no sins, dear friend, there are no sins in your background, no matter how vile, no matter how much remorse you may feel in your heart that put you outside the reach of God's grace and the effectual, saving, transforming call of God. That is the first mark of Abraham's saving faith election. The second mark is submission. Abraham is called and he obeys. Beloved, dear friend, there's no call from God without a command. God's call is accompanied by a command. Faith and obedience are inseparable. We saw that certainly in the life of Noah, and we see that in all examples of faith in the scripture. And this 
point here, this mark here, I'll be brief, because submission flows from election, and submission flows into separation and sanctification. Obedience flows from the call, and obedience to God's call, to God's command, flows into going and living. By faith, Abraham, verse 8, when he was called, obeyed. That's the simple point. He obeyed. Uh, he obeyed this literally means the, the word here comes from the root word meaning to hear. It means to hear and obey. It's coming under what God says. So Abraham was called. The word of God came to him and he obeyed it. He put himself under it. Beloved, Abraham's obedience that the author of Hebrews brings out here was the outward visible expression and manifestation of his inward faith. And the grammar here indicates that it was an immediate response. Literally, as he was being called, he obeyed. In the same way, expanding from the illustration before, in the same way when Jesus told Matthew, Levi was called Matthew, follow me, Matthew immediately got up and left his table. What the author of Hebrews says here is, as he was being called by God, he obeyed. That kind of prompt obedience is what is reflective of saving faith. When we broaden our scope here from chapter 11, remember all the way back at the beginning of Hebrews, the author opens up uh, the letter to the Hebrews with the fact that God has spoken. He's spoken, in fact, in the Son. The Son is the final word of Christ. God has spoken, and in a sense, what chapter 11, as we go through this hall of faith, is asking is, do you believe him? Do you believe what God says in his word? And beloved, when we consider the obedience, when we consider the submission of Abraham, we understand we can't all be kings like David. We can't all be lawgivers like Moses. We can't all be generals like Joshua. But we can, by God's grace and mercy, all have faith like Abraham. We can, by God's grace and mercy, be called a friend of God like Abraham. I am one of them, and so are you. So election, submission. The third mark of Abraham's saving faith is separation. He was called, he obeyed, and he went. God said go, and Abraham went. And even if we continue the motif and we continue the theme of what we've seen with the previous example, we know that Abel had a worshiping faith. Enoch had a walking faith. Noah had a working faith. And if we want to keep that going, we could say that Abraham had a wayfaring faith. He was a pilgrim, not wayfaring. To be sure, he did waver, but he was wayfaring. He was called to be a nomad. He was called to be a pilgrim. He was called to demonstrate that God says, go to a land that I will call you to. And when he called him, he didn't even tell him where he was going. And even as God gave more details of what that would look like, he never realized that. So he lived his life as a pilgrim. Verse 8 continues, by going out to a place which he was, so he obeyed, by going out to a place which he was to receive for an inheritance, watch this, and he went out not knowing where he was going. He left the land of paganism to the land of promise, but he didn't know initially in the first call where that was. 
God said again back in Genesis 12, 1, go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house. Leave everything. Leave security. Leave your country. Leave your people. Leave your family. I mean, that's a difficult enough pill for us to swallow or to understand, but to truly grasp the magnitude, this was not in, this was 4,000 years ago. They didn't have the internet. They didn't have phones. They didn't, I mean, they didn't have planes, trains, and automobiles. This was a massive call from God on Abraham to step out by faith and to walk by faith. Genesis 12, 1, God says go. Genesis 12, 4, God tells us Abraham went. His obedient faith worked despite obstacles, despite opposition. In fact, let's read verses 5 and 6 of Genesis 12. Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his nephew, and all their possessions which they had accumulated, and the persons which they had acquired in Haran, and they set out for the land of Canaan. Thus they came to the land of Canaan. Pause there for a second. So God called Abram from the land of Ur of the Chaldeans. That would be in southern Iraq right now. They went and they began to go where God called them, but they stopped up in Haran. Haran is now around uh, the southern border of Turkey in the northern part of Syria. They stayed there for a time. Then a second call came from God to Abram, and then there he left, and they went up around the Fertile Crescent to enter into the land of Canaan. In verse 6. And Abram passed through the land as far as the site of Shechem to the oak of Morah. Now the Canaanite was then in the land. So God has called him to go into a hostile territory, to leave the land of paganism into a land of promise. Abraham separated from the land of paganism, but he didn't know where this was when he obeyed and went. He exchanged the known for the unknown by faith. By faith, It was only after he left Ur and then only after he left Haran that God then at that point gave him the further revelation that this land I'm taking to you, I will give to you and your descendants. So again, tremendous demonstration of faith. So Abraham receives this volume of attention in Genesis and Hebrews 11 by virtue of how God uniquely used him, but also because he is such a stellar example of walking by faith, of trusting God. Calvin, John Calvin said, quote, it's no ordinary test of faith to give up what we have in hand in order to seek what's far away and unknown. Beloved, dear friend, Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. You don't need to know. I don't need to know the where. We have to know the way. Jesus is the way. Believe the one who calls you and believe the one who promises you. Luther said this quote, this is the glory of faith, simply not to know. Not to know where you're going, not to know what you're doing, not to know what you must suffer, and with sense and intellect, virtue and will, all alike made captive to follow the naked voice of God. Abraham, with this obedience of faith, shows the highest example of the evangelical life. 
because he left all and followed the Lord, preferring the word of God to everything else and loving it above all things. Of his own free will, a pilgrim and subject to the perils of life and death every hour of the day and night, end quote. Luther also, of course, wrote the beautiful hymn that we often sing, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. That word above all earthly powers, no thanks to them abideth. The spirit and the gifts are ours through him who with us sideth. And then he gives an application that we sing. Let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also. The body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. Beloved, that's the same truth that you and I sing. That's the same truth that Martin Luther wrote some 500 years ago. That's the same truth that was based on the promise of God that caused Abraham to step out on faith. And by the way, maybe you've heard the adage, and it's, it's got a kernel of truth in it. You're either going, sending, or sinning. You're either going, comma, sending, comma, or sinning, comma. There's certain denominations that that's popular. And again, it has a kernel of truth, but it actually needs refinement. It's better to say you're either going and sending, comma, or sinning. In other words, again, when we think of the call, when we think of the obedience, when we think of going, we're going to be so blessed to, on March 17th through the 19th, have a missions emphasis weekend. Uh, we're going to have Micah Turner from Albania, Christian Andreessen from uh, Germany, uh, Chris and Tessa Ball and family from San Bruno, Texas, and our own Greek professor and his wife who are here with us. It's going to be an incredible weekend. We want to emphasize and think of missions and missionaries. And at the same time, every one of us, if you're a Christian here, God calls you to go. Go into Microsoft. Go into your insurance company. Go into your construction camp and witness and testify of the goodness of God in your life. We all have a call from God. We're all called, we all must obey, we all must go. There are only two kinds of Christians. You're either a soul winner or you're a backslider at times in life. And if we find ourselves on a spiritual cul-de-sac, it's time to repent and go. So election, submission, separation. The final mark of Abraham's saving faith is sanctification. Abraham was called, he obeyed and went, and the text says he lived. He lived. There's a command to obey and there's a promise to seize. Look at verse 9. By faith he lived as an alien in the land of promise as in a foreign land. Abraham was in the land that God called him to, the land of Canaan. Back in Genesis chapter 9, Canaan was cursed. We understand that. So Abraham was in Canaan, but Abraham was not of Canaan. Beloved, in the exact same way, you, we are in the world. We are to be in the world. We're not to be in the monastery. We're not to be in the cave. We're to be in the world. But by the might and power of the indwelling Holy Spirit, we are to be not of the world. And notice the phrase, the land of promise. Just a side note, <clears throat> I personally never say the word Palestine. I never say the word Palestine. 
Uh, Palestine means the land of Philistia, the land of the Philistines. Now, the Philistines were in the land, but when we think of the land, it's not Palestine. It's not the land of the Phil- Philistines. It's the promised land. So for me personally, when I refer to the land, I try to never say, and I think I've done a pretty good job over the years, ever say Palestine. I say the promised land. So thank you for tolerating my hobby horse on that. But verse 9 continues, and this describes in further detail what his life of sanctification, what his life of obedient faith looks like. Dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise. Um, I will bless you. I will bless you. Again, that is how God opened up telling Abraham back in Genesis 12, verse 1, what he would do. I will bless you. And he gave the exact same promise to Isaac and to Jacob. Isaac in Genesis 26, verse 3, and Jacob in Genesis 28, verse 13, which are the exact same verse, exact same words in both verses from God to Isaac and Jacob. Sojourn in this land, and I will be with you and bless you. For to you and to your descendants I will give all these lands, and I will establish the oath which I swore to your father Abraham. So Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob received the exact same promise. And, beloved, in the context of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, Abraham never became a citizen there. He never built a house there. He dwelled variously at Shechem, Bethel, Hebron, and Beersheba, always pitching tents. The only part of the land Abraham ever acquired, ever received, was a burial plot in Machpelah. That was for the passing away of his beloved wife, Sarah, in chapter 23. So Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob all lived the life of a nomad, all as aliens in a foreign land, waiting for the promise that never came in their lifetimes. And even as part of the sanctifying separation, they didn't dwell in the pagan Canaanite cities. They would pitch their tents on the outskirts. They lived all their days as pilgrims, resolutely trusting the Lord and resolutely pressing on with the Lord. In Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, when Christian Christian and faithful are in Vanity Fair, there is a huge spectacle because they talk so differently, they look so differently, and all the merchants and all the citizens of Vanity Fair were mocking them because of how they looked, how they talked, and the merchants that were selling the clothes of Vanity Fair would cry out to Christian and faithful to come to their booth, and Bunyan says that they would turn their eyes away and plug their ears and look upward, signifying that their trade and traffic was in heaven, that as pilgrims, they were looking to a city beyond the one they were in. Beloved, dear friend, pilgrims look different, talk different, live differently. And notice this, in the case of Abraham, in fact, in the case all the way up with Isaac and Jacob, there are no great kings or empires, at least in Abraham's life, in Genesis 11 through 25, no massive temples. The life of Abraham is characterized by tents and by altars. Go back to Genesis chapter 12, and let's have a final reading of verses 7 and 8. Beautiful, beautiful. This, this, the, these two verses are incredible. Genesis 12, 7. 
And the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your descendants I will give this land. That is when he gives him the details. So, watch this. He built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. That was at Shechem. Verse 8, then he proceeded from there to the mountain on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. Beloved, Abraham responded, God told Abraham, I will make your name great. But finally, when he gets into the land that God had promised, he didn't build an edifice. He didn't build a monument to himself. He continued to dwell in tents. That was the pilgrimage aspect. But there was a permanence aspect. He built altars. He built an altar in Shechem. He built an altar in Bethel, i.e., for the glory of God. Abraham's saving faith, beloved, works, and Abraham's saving faith witnesses and notice also what it says at the end of verse 8 called upon the name of the Lord we saw that incredible phrase back in chapter 4 Genesis 4 26 in the days of Seth was when men began to call upon the name of the Lord they began to have the corporate worship perhaps the preaching of the word of God beloved God's point here in Genesis 11 and in, I'm sorry, in uh, Hebrews 11 and in Genesis 12, is that Abraham didn't demonstrate his faith merely with a single act of faith. He demonstrated his faith with an attitude and a life of faith. To be sure, when we understand the whole counsel of God's word on the life of Abraham, he did waver, to be sure. He did fall. He has painted warts and all. But God's blessing and mercy when God writes of him in Genesis 11. And in fact, all the examples of what we have of the men and women of old, he doesn't, God in, Genesis, in Hebrews 11 doesn't talk about their warts. We can see their warts back in the Old Testament narratives. He brings out the highlight of their faith. We may not be wandering tribesmen, beloved, in the middle of a desert, but every Christian is a pilgrim in a land that is not his or her own. Stand where God has you. Eric Alexander, the Scottish preacher, said, there's no ideal place to serve God except the place he had set you down. And one of my all-time favorites, Jim Elliott, wherever God has you, be all there. Be all there for the glory of God. And beloved, faith trusts God for the future. Abraham was faithful in the present because of his confidence in what God would do in the future. Look at the end of verse 10, or look at verse 10. For he was looking for, he was waiting, he was expecting the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. Abraham did leave the land of pagans to enter the land of promise. But the physical land of promise, that God still will, even when the nation of Israel comes towards the end times, and when the nation of Israel turns to the sun and mourn for Yahweh whom they pierced, as for an only son, Zechariah 12.10, when the nation of Israel does repent as a nation, God will fulfill the land promise, the physical land promise that he gave them. But understand this, that physical land that God will eventually give to a repentant Israel, that physical land that Abraham dwelt in was 
merely a signpost to a greater and more lasting promise. Just as the true rest of God, the Sabbath rest of God, was not realized in the case of Joshua, back in Hebrews 4, verse 8, but is the eternal Sabbath rest that we enjoy in Christ, so also there is a greater reality. So also Abraham looked from the tents of Canaan to the city of God, a city whose foundations are secure, indestructible, and utterly unshakable. Psalm 46.4, there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy dwelling places of the Most High. Psalm 87, verse 3, glorious things are spoken of you, O city of God. Verse 16 here of Hebrews, as it is, they desire a better country, that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. He has prepared a city for you, a land of promise, an eternal land of promise for you. Also, Hebrews 12 22, 13, verse 14. Beloved, you and I are responsible for what we do and what we have before God as stewards. And we also at times, the reality is, can become prisoners of what we do and what we have. Beloved, the sandcastles of this world must not distract us from the heavenly city. We walk as free men, We walk as free women in this beautiful land of Gilbert, Arizona, with passports stamped heaven. Faith, your faith, makes you an alien here and a citizen there. And so we don't look for our ultimate fulfillment here. We understand the joys of this world are fleeting and passing, but the joys of heaven are eternal, abundant, and never fading. Solid joys and lasting treasures in the city that God builds. And beloved, your faith frees you from the clawing grip of the things of this world as you and I look to our highest joy and our deepest delight. Please join me as we go to the Lord in prayer. Lord God, we praise you and thank you. We thank you, Lord, for the faith, for the gospel, for the message, for the word of God, for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints, the faith that was once for all delivered to us even here. We thank you for the wonder and the majesty of how you use different men and women in different ways, in different lands, in different languages, in different circumstances. Every testimony is glorious and wonderful. Every testimony is of the miracle of you putting life where there was no life before, whether it's a moon-worshiping pagan 4,000 years ago, whether it's an abortionist, whether it's a fornicator, whether it's a thief, whether it's a prideful, respectable CEO of a company who doesn't shun away from his family but is living for self rather than for you. Lord God, every conversion is a miracle and a testimony and a shining jewel, Lord Jesus, for your glory and for our eternal joy. And Lord Jesus, even now as we approach the communion table, we realize that what we are remembering, what we are commemorating here 
is what provided what provides our salvation and what provided the salvation for Abel and Enoch and Noah and Abraham. It is for your glory and for your honor, Lord Jesus, that we pray and we approach the communion table. Amen.